Allison. And I'm Stacy. And you are listening to the Best Together Podcast. Brought to you by Blind Early Services Tennessee. And made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Best Together Podcast. Stacy and I are here today, and we are thrilled to welcome Dr. Grace Ambrose Zakin, President and CEO of a nonprofit organization called Safe Toddles. She is a recently retired professor of special education at Hunter College in New York, where she taught orientation and mobility specialists for over 25 years. And finally, she is the creator of a pediatric belt cane made to provide children who are blind or visually impaired a solution for walking independently and safely. Welcome, Dr. Ambrose Zakin. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with you guys. Hi, Allison. Hi, Stacy. Hello. Hello. So we always just start right at the beginning, and this is pretty much the same question we ask everyone who is a uh, provider or professional in the field. But what led you to the field of vision impairment, orientation, mobility? And I know you've been teaching or you had taught um, at Hunter for 25 years, but maybe it goes back even further than that. Kind of give us your story. Thank you. Well, yes. I mean, it's um, a story mostly that I love when I found out about that teachers get to work one on one and that in orientation mobility, you know, we explore new environments, we learn new places, and we get to be creative. And that's mostly because no two consumers are the same. And so it just keeps it so interesting. So I love, I always wanted to be a teacher, but then I really found the kind of teaching that spoke to me. So that, wow. I I mean, I feel like I didn't know this was even a field until I had my son. So I'm always interested when people don't have that personal connection of someone knowing someone or someone who was already in the field of just finding it. And I wish more people would please. Right. right. Or starting as a TVI and then getting your O&M credentials. But you didn't start as a TVI, Grace, right? You just went right into O&M. Well, if so the way it worked was I was looking for a job after school and I started substitute teaching. And then in New Orleans, in Louisiana, where I lived, there are a lot of parishes, which is what we call counties, that, and one of them was looking to hire. And so I put my name in and they hired me to be a homebound teacher. And that's somebody who goes out to the people, kids' homes for whatever reason they can't go to school. They're usually ill. So I would go to hospitals or in in other ways. And I did, that was very challenging. Uh, But then there was a position that they said that I would be right for, which is uh, teaching a, uh, It was what they used to do is they put all the disabilities into one classroom, (laughs) but it was awful because like the behavior disorder kids would beat up the learning disabled kids and they would Mm -hmm. all make fun of the kids with, you know, cognitive impairment. So it was just a terrible idea. (laughs) Well, what are we thinking here? And then eventually the position opened up for itinerant teacher of the blind. And what I really was attracted, like I say, to this really was one-on-one interesting. I was going to school, getting my graduate degree, and I learned about Ann Corn. And Professor Corn had a program at University of Texas at Austin. 
And so one day I was going with my parents. I said, well, let me just drop in on her. See what she can tell me about her program. And she was funny. She's like, you know, usually people make appointments. <laughs> I was going to say, you just showed up. I love it. <laughs> and, uh, but, and then she said, you know, well, there's grants down the hall if you want to talk to Professor Walker. And I said, okay. So, you know, between her door, I wanted to be a TBI and I did get accepted to that program, but I didn't mind getting some O&M money. And so I said, I always wanted to be an O&M too. I had never heard of, but um, I did get that money. And I also found something that, as I say, truly speaks to me. O&M more to me I mean, I did teach TBI as a TBI in New Orleans public schools and St. Bernard Parish. Um, and I carried brailers and large books and I recorded my own books. I mean, we had to create our own braille. This, you know, we were before they had, you know, just easy access to yeah. braille. We had to be all things to everyone. And it was it was pretty grueling. And we had to fight to get kids into the classroom and allow them to be part of, you know, taking things to the office and mm. just seen as kids. So it definitely so was well. in the schools teaching uh, as a teacher. And then orientation mobility was something that I just continued to do. And I went to get my doctorate. I could do my um, consulting. And so I could go in and easily take up, uh, take up O&M cases. But it was, you know, it's just one of those things that I went from graduate school in Nashville to graduate school. I mean, from Austin, Texas to Nashville and got my doctorate and then came to New York to begin teaching at Hunter College. I do want to go back to the Austin program because it sounds yeah. um, somewhat unique in that it had both the TVI graduate program and an O&M track. Um, a lot of good things come out of Texas when it comes from division. But um, could you speak a little more about that program? Because um, we are trying to, of course, get uh, get more people into the field. So maybe maybe some of our listeners are considering programs or currently in a program. Um, if you could talk a little more about what Austin offered. Well, the University of Texas at Austin is a beautiful campus. I don't think they, the program is still open, but at that oh, time man. it was this okay. heyday. Uh, Ann Corn was there, Natalie Berga, who uh, did um, a huge innovation in low vision herself, um, was uh, emeritus and would lecture. And uh, they also had Jane Aaron, who was you know, deeply interested in kids with uh, multiple and severe disabilities. It was the place where cortical visual impairment was very much uh, very early on in its early stages being explored, discovered, wondered about. And we're talking about this is the early, this is in the 90s, um, so early 90s. And it's something that people hadn't even thought about, but they were really investigating it there. And then, of course, Brad Walker ran the orientation mobility program. Um, one of my teaching aides was Laura Bozeman, who was just awarded like the seminal prize in orientation mobility. And, and so it was really an amazing program. It was a diverse program high up there and I corn, I think is well known as well. I wonder why it's no longer. I, I mean, you may not know that, but it sounds like it was, you know, 
producing really great leaders in the field and now to not even have a program seems good. Well, Ann Corn actually, the reason I went to Nashville is she got uh, lured to Peabody College oh, okay. and she said, do you want to get your doctorate? And I said, absolutely. Let me go with you to Nashville. So she left and then uh, Jane Aaron and Brad Walker, um, I think Jane went to Arizona and Brad, excuse me, was on a grant. I don't think that he had a hard money position. So that's a problem with our field is that many of our programs are funded through federal and private dollars and not the university. And yeah. so when the, 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 when they took Anne, um, you know, it, it kind of all fell apart from there because yeah. she was the one who was writing all the grants. So, and they do have two other programs in Texas. Um, I think that are still going strong. Yeah. And we have a wonderful program in Nashville. So there was, there were a few years there where Peabody did not offer the uh, TVI graduate degree, but they do again. Um, yes, so we're really happy. And I, I didn't realize, Grace, that you had spent time in Nashville getting your, your doctorate here. So yes, four that's, years. That's very cool. <laughs> and it's, um, tell us a little bit about the doctorate program and what you studied. It was also in its heyday, pretty much. And Corn, of course, got me there. And um, uh, Butch uh, Hill, who wrote the Blue Book along with Purvis Ponder, who was in Florida, he was there. And she said, whatever you do, if he asks you anything about Buddy Holly, you tell him you love Buddy Holly. <laughs> well, good thing I do actually love Buddy Holly because, of course, he, he was a huge fan of Buddy Holly, which Hill was, and um, he did ask me about it, and I knew a number of his songs. And uh, But I was also a fan of his. He was one of the first O&Ms to really investigate early intervention. He looked at push toys and other ways to try to get kids moving. He also standardized um, an instrument on concepts, um, you know, and and so he it was a very sad loss because in my second year is when he passed away suddenly on the basketball court. Oh, and his wife, Mary Maureen Hill, was there doing O&M. We also had Dan Ashmead and um, John Reiser who were in the cognitive science working on you know, auditory perception and other things, trying to figure out about the orientation of kids with uh, visual impairments. And Rob Wall was a year behind me. He's fairly wow. well known th these days yeah. in his work at JBIB. So it was fun to know him as a student. So was the <laughs> job offer at Hunter College what drew you to New York? Or yes. were you already there? Okay. It was the only job offer in the field. <laughs> So I'm like, all right, I'm moving again. <laughs> and uh, it was a great move. I, uh, you know, Hunter was a program that needed someone to come in. Uh, they had one full-time person, Roseanne Silverman, and her area was uh, multiple disabilities, including deaf blindness. So it was some kids who were visually impaired, but also had additional physical and intellectual disabilities. And, um, She's, you know, a wonderful published author in that field, researcher in that field. Um, but the rehab teaching program, or what is now known as vision rehabilitation, was struggling. And it, you know, it was one of, 
there are only a few programs in the country and the whole all of the agencies were like oh thank goodness someone is coming here to help with this program although i wasn't a rehab teacher that was part of my job and then also they wanted to continue with orientation mobility to build it but at that time there were only two courses six credits in orientation and mobility so when i what i did was i created a fully standalone orientation mobility uh course so 22 credits and then also we then aligned it most uh programs or at least when i was in school were tbi and o m together so it's a there are more tbi programs than o m but many of them have some component of uh, the, the dual um, and they're completely separate in terms of everything. So yes. I don't know, but it, it is a nice way to get both degrees without having to go and come back, which is what you had to do at Hunter. We would lose a lot of students that way. So by the time I finished with it, we had everything that everyone else had. We've always, so now we have all of the disciplines um, fully formed. And so you've retired, but that program is still going it strong. Does. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. great. Absolutely. Good, good, good. Um, so what do you love most about working in orientation mobility? And then do you feel like there's anything that might be misunderstood about the field or the role that we play? Or, I'm not an O&M, I should say, the role that you play um, in, you know, the lives of children and adults who are blind or visually impaired? Well, I think the greatest thing is that you really get to see the change and we are able to measure the success of a learner calibrated to that learner so you know some of the things i learned working with jane aaron and roseanne silverman is you calibrate what are the goals and then you can measure and see the success within your student based on their specific needs and that is wonderful and then there are so many kids and adults who are and more capable than society would believe in them and 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 there's a lot of people in the world who are not understanding of what we're doing there are mm. people who think orientation and mobility somehow puts people at risk when in fact it's mm. quite the opposite by having a mobility tool and training on independent travel you're actually safer <laughs> when you That's go out and do it yeah what what is leading to that perception that it's putting people at risk i didn't really know that it was a well i think it has to do with our belief in independent travel for someone who cannot mm. see where they're going mm. and the idea for many is wouldn't it just be better if they stick with me i can see i can guide oh, them oh gotcha and um and it is true that especially when you watch someone who doesn't have a tool they are very unsafe so it's a natural thing but if you don't know that it exists, you know, the field exists that actually has an effective way to navigate safely and effectively. Um, I mean, there are still, I think you know, I believe there's still a great need to continue to innovate for our diverse yeah. population. Um, but it, it is highly successful. Um, yeah, and I mean, independence is so important for anyone. So to think well we'll just you know rely on other people that's just yeah well blindness i think one of the problems that i i may you know 
you might take issue with is people say, well, 90%, I mean, this percentage is always changing. It's always getting higher of how much vision is essential for what you learn. And it negates really the other senses in terms of the capacity. And then there are also this other thing, well, you know, you lose your vision, you gain, you know, you get a prize, (laughs) better hearing or something, which is, it's also kind of crazy to think about it because it's just, you might learn how to use something better if you have the cognitive ability to do that, but you don't gain and, you know, better, you're not becoming a bad. But the other problem is um, that this idea that you have to have vision to learn has also kept our kids sort of in this netherland of, well, they're not motivated because they don't see visually. When in fact, you know, kids are motivated because they can and want to move and explore and be a part of the world. Not being able to see can do is make you feel unsafe. It also causes a difficulty in balancing very early on. And so some of the things that we've equated with vision impairment and blindness is being unaware, um, you know, being, you know, the, the joke being that, you know, you could go to a place and have no idea at all where you are or what you're touching or what you're eating. And, you know, the sense of smell and taste and your feel of your hand and all and what you're hearing and just the knowledge that you had an intention to go outside and now you're outside. All of these things are well within the ability of a person with a brain. And so this complete sort of sort of like abnegation of I don't know what anyone could know if they couldn't see it mm-hmm. just isn't serving anyone you learn through incidental experiences whether you can see them or not but what is holding our children back from it is a very complex set of circumstances we can't just boil it down to well they can't see and then that is going to be the reason why and right. we have to yeah. make much more of a nuanced uh, assessment as to what could this child be doing. That's yeah. such a good point that oversimplifying that um, really could leave out a lot of the variables that I'm sure you work with in getting kiddos to feel confident um, yeah. moving independently with an aid or without. Or, um, and I'm curious too, Grace, um, of course, our organization, Blind Early Services Tennessee, we serve kiddos across the spectrum of vision, of, of blindness, of vision loss from, and even Allison and I together just here represent um, par- different parts of that spectrum with Allison's son being totally blind, no light perception. My son um, having optic nerve damage to where he does have light perception. Um, and then a lot of those variables that go into when he can see well or when he can't, you know, depending on lighting and and other predictable or unpredictable circumstances, depending on where you're at. What primarily, or what population would you say primarily do you serve? Um, Really just to clarify that for our listeners, like are, are you serving really, you know, children that, or adults that have total blindness, no light perception, definitely would rely on a cane or also people that, you know, maybe don't always need a cane, but would in some circumstances. Well, in my entire career, I of course served um, every kind of description or distinction that you want in orientation and mobility. The question is who 
if you were to think about who needs a mobility tool, mm-hmm. um, I could narrow it to that. And certainly if someone is blind, there's no question there, right? They right. absolutely can't see where they're going. And to say that someone is blind who's one year old can wait to get safety later is not something we say about a sighted one year old. We make sure they're as safe as they can possibly be their entire lives. So I don't think we should be waiting for a blind toddler to eventually be able to be safe one day. There's also a group of kids who are mobility visually impaired. And what that means is their vision does not make them able to avoid objects visually. And so there is some vision, it is useful vision, but say you have a lower field loss. That means you are missing vital information about steps going down, obstacles in your path. And if you're gonna use your vision to look around and get information, you're going to be at risk. And if you're gonna be, you have your head down, looking down, you're still missing lots of things. So having a mobility visual impairment also means that you will need to use your mobility tool all of the time. And I think that's the other misunderstanding is when do we need a mobility tool? And I don't think anyone has that misunderstanding with say kids who are paralyzed, right? We know you need that wheelchair most if not all of the day. Mm -hmm. Right? There are exceptions to the day with that makes sense if you're sleeping. Right. You know all of the human um, natural needs but you know to get around why would you take them out of their wheelchair what about hearing aids right mm-hmm. we don't think well you shouldn't hear this so take your hearing aid out now right. right we wouldn't want to deny a child their mobility tool or their hearing aid for any real reason I can't think of one but for some reason And I think the reason is that the long cane doesn't work. And then push toys are, you know, a a Band-Aid at best. Uh, Any other handheld device has very, is lost on a child who's a toddler. The fact that the current tools haven't worked have allowed us to create this narrative. I mean, that it's okay. Mm -hmm. That, and in fact, the, the texts on bruises and blind kids go back uh, to Perkins, you know, Samuel Gridley Howe said, it's going to cause them bruises. Cuts forth, 1930s. If they get bruises, it means they're learning. Lowenfeld in the 60s, they're going to have to get hurt because you need real experiences to learn to read and to develop concepts. The only way to get real experiences is to let these kids get out and get hurt. Hmm. And I just think, in what universe is that okay? Hmm. Except in the blind universe that we've just accepted as mothers, as grandmothers, and as women, because we are the ones in the field accepting somehow it's okay, rather than say, hey, there's got to be a better way. We can't see its child run into the wall one more time. Yeah. Well, I imagine that this leads us perfectly into you telling us about safe toddles and your pediatric belt cane which based on what you just said I imagine this is exactly why you decided to create it so tell us about how that came to be well as when I came to Hunter College um, I did still want to know what is O&M what is the value of O&M and I started a project where I interviewed over 100 employed adults who were blind (laughs) or mobility visually impaired um, 
and who were born that way. And what I got, um, I'm posting on my own podcast now, is the interviews. And what I learned from that, it still has taken me a while to really understand what they're telling me. You know, if you grew up in 1950, you weren't given a long cane. It wasn't even on the radar. And canes were just, you know, created in 1945. In fact, when they created the long cane in 1945 for adventitiously blinded young men who came home from the war and demanded something better, it didn't say, oh, Eureka, now that we've discovered a way to make it safer for blind young men to move around, let's find out if this would apply to children. Nobody said that. It would be 20 plus years before they would bring it to the high schools and it, they would study it and they would say, oh, by the way, they don't want to go anywhere. They don't have anywhere to go. So they don't really need a long cane. And it's why does high school students lack the ability to move around? And it was clearly understood as we start to look at this problem that maybe it had to do with something of they had never had the ability to go anywhere. And when do you learn to do that? When do you learn the confidence to strike out on your own? And like it or not, it happens around 18 months old. Hmm. You should be walking well. And everyone should be worried about your safety, putting up gates, <laughs> taking things away that are breakable, putting them up high. You have to be five to seven hours a day at 18 months old walking around. And then by two years old running and about eight hours a day physically active. And so when we start hearing from Stanley Gridley Howe. I mean, I read every everything there was to read from 1787 forward, every school oh my gosh. almanac, every journal every article ever published, every research ever published, every book ever published by American Foundation for the Blind. I mean, when I, I scoured the internet, I just, just cover to cover. I didn't just look at the orientation mobility articles. I looked cover to cover. And what I did see was First, it was motor delay and concept delays, language and social skill delays. And each of these were in different silos. So the social skill people were not talking to the language people who were not talking to the concept people who weren't. No one was talking to the motor skill people because the motor skill. What do we do about that? Well, we'll just sit them down and teach them at a table, mm -hmm. which for a child of, you know, under three makes little sense mm -hmm. that a child can sit still and learn that's not the nature of preschool it's not the nature of early childhood learning you don't sit you learn you walk to learn mm -hmm. so that is when it hit me i'm riding on the subway one day after you know trying to think if only they had a cane if only they had a cane if only they had a way and i wasn't the first person to have that thought but I thought, you know, well, what if they could wear, you know, that way they don't have to be responsible in, to an, a level in which a child is not able to be responsible. Right. Can't you put them in car seats because they're not responsible or the right size for an adult? Seat, right. You give them tools that fit them in their size and their ability. And the same is with the long cane. It doesn't work because it they can't do it because they're too little. And so all the king's horses and all the king's men who are trying to get little kids to use <laughs> long canes just can't get Humpty Dumpty to use that long cane. It's just not working. 
It's yeah. and, and we've tried and I commend everyone who does. But as an orientation mobility specialist who taught the lab, I can get an adult to use a long cane in 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Right. One step, one swipe, no prompts. Then we can move on from there. And we can learn everything else there is to learn about oriented travel, how to make a route plan, how to confirm where you are, how to go up and down stairs, anything else. I just need you to have that cane in front of your path as you move around independently without me reminding you so that we can learn everything else there is to learn. That's why you see so much effort in trying to get a little kid to do that. Right, you tell them side to side. Put your cane in front. Cane in front. Cane in front. Put your cane in front. Side mm-hmm. to side. Hold it. <laughs> right. So it's like we we can't get past that. Right. And start the next phase, which is what we're all trying to get to, which is the fun, orientation, route planning, play, chase me. Let's go have and find and do. So until they get something in front of them that protects them as they move independently. So that's why I wanted to do that. I wanted to give them a way to easily have the safety information in front of them as they moved about. And what I learned later in my research is, well, it's more than safety. Yes, it provides them with this buffer, but it also provides them with haptic feedback. Hmm. And that is their strongest form of balance at that age. Vision is a balance sense. So when you start to walk you know, between 12 months and 24 months, you really are relying on vision for balance. When you don't have that, you know, you've got vestibular, which is not a great, your inner ear, mm-hmm. it's do it all it can, but haptic, holding on, holding a hand, holding a couch, cruising, holding a wall, walking along the wall, all of that is balance uh, induced haptic sense. And that's what most of our kids, my research has shown, will hold a hand well into a way past the age they should. Um, mm. Some, you know, and, and, and by three sensory, some out of sensory comes in. So three to six, it gets fully formed. So there are kids who are blind, who take these two balances and make it work for them, you know, eventually fine. And they're very resilient kids. There are plenty of kids who are not resilient, who are, you know, really traumatized and can't get past this first few years without having any balance. And um, those are the ones that worry me the most. I am love to hear all of the success stories of those who go on and, um, succeed in spite of all of this but unfortunately there's so many who come to save toddles seeking an answer at eight years old 15 Mm. years old who are still struggling with this inability to walk independently and uh, that's a problem so it's um i mean i've seen one and had one um but for since there's no visual representation on the podcast it's a cane that straps around the child's waist and they get measured for that and it kind of um it's like a long rectangle coming off of them and then it you know glides or or moves forward pretty easily so you had this idea and I'm sure my description wasn't great so you can you can edit that but um 
how do you actually go about getting something like this made and who did you collaborate with or where did you go? I mean, you just kind of did it. How did it happen? Well, as soon as I had the idea and I started talking about it to people in the field, I was called crazy and it was not nice, but I mm. said, oh, I'm going to have to prove it on my own. So I started going to hardware stores and fabric stores. I had an idea in my head of what it could be. And I had a friend who had a daughter who uh, had optic nerve hypoplasia and she was three. And she, so I would give free O&M lessons if she would let try on my belt king ideas. And it felt like the Wright brothers because I have videos of all the crashing burn, <laughs> you know, on the beach and it's stumbling yes. and falling apart. So, and but then the nurse they did and did it did until one day it flew, and the same thing happened for me. One day it worked, and it was her little brother who was sighted, but he was the right size, and he wore it, and it stayed in front of him as he walked, as he turned, as he went on different surfaces, and that was all I was hoping for, and I was able to turn that into my IRB team at Hunter so I could do the research on this device, the Institutional Review Board. So every university professor, anyone who does research has to get approval from the IRB um, at the university, and on that IRB was Marone Bixen, and he's a professor of engineering. He makes medical devices, and he also was a father of two boys about the right age, and they were sighted, but he could not believe. He said, I can't believe this doesn't exist already, hmm. and I will give you as anything I can to open up my lab so that we can build this together, and we did. We got some grant money. We did um, rapid prototyping. They took my design and we were able to make it in as a 3D printed design, which is the parts that are plastic are printed on 3D printers. We used the tubing from Ambutech, which is the cane company, fiberglass, not fiberglass, carbon fiber tubing. We have ball bearings at the bottom with sheet metal to glide over most surfaces. The belt, uh, was made out of seatbelt material. So one of the little girls named the belt cane. Cause I was calling it a toddler oh. cane, oh. but she would call it my belt belt cane. And so, you know, <laughs> put my seatbelt on my safety belt. And I was like, Cute. yeah, I like that. And, um, she, you know, a lot of these three-year-olds wouldn't take it off. They really loved it and, um, they wore it all the time and it really helped them. So, so that's, you know, from there, you know, I've had people like Elga Jaffe, um, you know, a long time O&M, who fought and fought and fought. You know, they, a lot of these, they would get, come at me from every which way of saying, it can't be true. You can't, we can't need this. Hmm. If we needed this, why didn't someone else? You know, hmm. Why haven't we done this? But there are other people who said, yeah, I thought about it. I tried to make it. I tried all sorts of ways to do similar things. So there are people who had the idea, of course, before I had it. But it was just some combination of will and luck, lucky timing and everything that has allowed me to move forward with it um, in the way that I've done with a great group of people. We have a great board now, our nonprofit board, all leaders in the field, um, who've come to really help us get the word out. So what year was that, that this all came to fruition? 
Well, I had the idea in 2014. Uh, it wasn't successful prototype until March of 2016. Okay. And then we got the grants and had our successful prototype at the end of 2017. So since then, we've been sending out bell canes. They're in every state in the U.S. and in 30 countries now. Oh, wow. wow. I think it makes sense that um, the idea would take off with you, Grace, because you were in such a unique position. You're already a researcher. You know how to do the IRB and get the right people involved. Because, I mean, with any field, um, people are going to be hesitant to adopt new equipment, um, and especially if it's not been uh, researched. So, which it's, it's good that people are hesitant, but then I'm, that does hold back progress at times, too. Um, can you speak a little more to, like, the ideal candidate for the cane bell? Uh, like, is there a specific age that it really targets? Or is it like a, a range of ages or a specific diagnosis that you see uh, that's really successful with this? I, you know, our youngest so far is 10 months old Oh wow. uh, in Uganda. They're sending us videos. And what I see, he's blind. And I'm like, just let him, you know, 10 months old standing is really a good skill. And, and she's got him. She's holding him up and trying to make him walk. And I'm like... Standing is good, right? <laughs> just, if you could just get that balance of standing up right on your own and sitting back down and pulling to stand and sitting back down, that's where I'd like to see you go with it. Uh, one of our most famous um, is on TikTok, Vinny. He's, um, what is it? Uh, Nana of Vinny is a TikTok that exploded when he started using his bell cane. And he started at 11 months. And so, again, he was walking with his hand held, perfectly normal, age appropriate, I should say, um, milestone for someone with his potential to walk. And he's walking up and down stairs now. He's uh, two and a half. He uses it like another appendage. He had his grandmother, his mother. He had a great O&M specialist and a physical therapist, an entire team who could all like really help each other to get him to use it at home, outside, um, to understand the difference between stimming and exploring and really what the goal was for the amount of time for walking. So here's a real success story. We have kids who are equally successful who are wearing their, uh, using their gait trainers or their walkers. And these are children who whose potential will be to use walkers their whole lives because they have cerebral palsy or some other motor impairment, but they're also blind or mobility visually impaired. And so they don't just need something for balance. They also need something for information about the path ahead. And so, you know, what we also have is people trying it with wheelchairs. It wasn't designed for that. But what it speaks to is a real need for innovation. This is one of the first tools that really kind of changed the dynamic of the long cane. So, you know, so the long cane and then the rectangular cane, some call it an AMD or alternative mobility device, which I try to shy away from because, you know, calling it an alternative is not really respecting the kids who really find a great deal of relief 
in having something so easy just to push in front of them. I've had three-year-olds highly successful with the rectangular cane. It's just so easy. They just push it in front of them. It's like a lawnmower, but so much lighter than a toy, so much easier to turn than many of these sort of off-the-shelf toys. And it looks like a cane. So having a rectangular cane is a great idea. But for wheelchairs, we really haven't scratched the surface for more complex needs in because they're not only motor impaired, but they're also visually impaired or blind. So we're not really speaking to them and giving them what they need if we hand them something that is, you know, really just for a picture. A long cane and a wheelchair, I think, are a bad combination. Uh, you need your hands either to work the controls or work the wheels or something, but having kind of a, a spear shaped item as you move along at a certain speed just doesn't seem like the right idea. And I think we could do better. I really think if we put our minds to it, we have like places like Maryland School for the Blind. I went there recently. They said, oh, we build all of these unique contraptions, unique to the students' needs at the time. And I'm like, where do we hear about these? Oh, wow. Right? How come there isn't some lexicon of devices that have been created that people could go to, look at, maybe even turn into something more sophisticated, more universal? So we have people experimenting, but we just don't have a way of sharing that. In hmm. some way, that's what we need. We need to really celebrate the innovations that are addressing the diversity of our students' needs. Well, and how do we measure the success of these devices? I mean, there's so many different schools of thoughts out there. The pre-cane, don't use the pre-cane. Long cane, don't use the long cane. Um, the belt cane, and now hearing about Maryland where they're kind of creating devices based on the student. How do we, it, get, it can get really confusing for parents um, and for me as a TVI, you know, I get questions all the time from parents about introducing a cane and I usually defer that to those of you in the O&M field, but how do we measure success and get to kind of a, a, a place where everyone, I mean, not everyone's going to agree, of course, but sure. you know, it's, it can be confusing. How do it we, can. you know, rectify that? Yeah, I get that. Um, well, is it is it hard to understand? Like, I don't think so. I think that what's hard is that, um, you know, consider that if we look at it from another field and we look at the, the deaf field, there's a lot of extreme ideas about sign. Um, some people in that field think you shouldn't teach a baby sign language. You should try to get them to do something else. There are parents of hearing babies who successfully teach infants sign language. Mm -hmm. My grandson knew some signs. There was a whole little book. And I mean, he, he wasn't, he's not a signer per se, but it's doable. So we look at that field and say, I don't understand what is the drawback of learning multiple ways to communicate. And if you're going to be a sign language user, why can't, even if you're going to have an operation to get your hearing back, what's the holdup with sign language if you're deaf infant? So that's then I sort of think, well, let's turn that critical eye on our field and say, what's the holdup 
with getting safety to our infants and toddlers who are blind. And there is a taboo word that I just said, safety, hmm. right? We're not allowed to talk about safety. Obviously, nothing is 100% safe. No one, I'm not trying to say that, but I am saying that if I have something between me and the wall, and that's more often than not going to stop me from running into the wall, that is safer than not having anything between me and the wall, right? So objectively, it is safer and safer is better. And there's, I don't think you could argue in any other way that less safe is better for children, especially children under the age of five. So when do you need a mobility tool and what is the success of the mobility tool? Well, a mobility tool is a very simple tool. It just needs to be between you as a buffer and the rest of the world. It's, it can be quite complex. The long cane is complex. It's deceptively simple. It's not simple. You have to move it one step, one swipe every time you take a step. And you should actually use constant contact. So even the original way of teaching, which was the army way, which, you know, fits with the way the soldiers march, tuck, 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 tuck. They've already done research to show that no, constant contact is much better. It gives you much more coverage, gives you much more information. And even then, it's about, you know, it's, it's better than 70% but it's not 100% likely going to get everything in your path. Without the cane, it's 100% likely you will run into something if you can't <laughs> see it, right? So it's it's a real great advancement. But if you move that long cane off to the side, if you're not moving it, you're only holding it to one point on the ground, you're not getting all of the coverage. You're getting very minimal safety from that long cane. So the changes that we have made in technique in the recent, um, just this century, have reduced the effectiveness and the safety of this tool because it's too hard for the user. Rather than say, hey, that the AMD, you know, the, the rectangular cane is the long cane arc. Right. It's that's the shape of it. It's the shape of the long cane going back and forth. But now all you have to do is push it forward and it's going to detect all of, it's going to have. A, it has like a much better chance than even the long cane does of keeping you informed of what's in front of you. Is it a clear path? Is it a blocked path? Is there a drop off? What's going on? I need that information because I can't see it. So the success rate of that is that it stays that they can hold it in front of them most of the day as they move around without being reminded without having you know and then it, some people will say well if you have to remind a child then they obviously feel safer without it than with it and i'm like wait i have to remind my child to put shoes on <laughs> i remind my child to put a coat on and a hat on and gloves on Am I, does, am I to say that if my child doesn't want to wear gloves and it's below 20 degrees in, I'm going to let them go out of the house in freezing weather because they don't want to wear gloves? No, I am the adult. I know the consequences of the behavior of not wearing your warm clothing and going out in freezing weather. They're not good. <laughs> Just as an O&M specialist, I know the consequences of trying to walk without vision are not good if you don't have a mobility tool. So the the success is twofold. One, 
can they use it consistently with minimal to no prompting? If they can't, it's too hard for them and they need to use something easier. And easy is good. The easier, the better, right? Because we just want safety to be easy. That's why seatbelt is easy and car seat is easy. Easy, easy, easy. And then we say, well, what about the belt cane? And that's even easier. I mean, it's not 100% easy. There are times when the belt cane, you have to reposition it. Um, there are sometimes who kids who get you know, emotional about having something new and the change. Um, so you have to remember it. You have to put it on. You know, like, it's not easy necessarily in the word of nothing, but the outcome of walking and walking more and more each day, all day long and getting your physical activity in, those are the things that are going to pay off the dividends in the end. So what's the success? Well, for kids who have a a real difficult time with their gait, the success will be in getting them to sort of be able to manage it, to, to move it back in front of them or finding a way to reposition that frame uh, consistently over time. It's easier to do that than to try to lean over them and make them use a long cane. <laughs> but it, the success is using it most of the day. And then when can we not have to use it that's always the next question. And again, that's, uh, we've seen great success transitioning to the um, handheld devices in children who are ready and have the potential to do that. Absolutely, it doesn't stop them from doing it. It doesn't stop them. Doesn't Kids don't get stopped much, right? So if they're gonna go up and down stairs and that's their goal, they're gonna use it. They're gonna go up and down with that belt cane as well. We have plenty of videos to show that outcome. But if you don't have that potential, that's not even a good question. It's just an unfair question. This child is not capable of independent, but they still can't see where they're going. So that doesn't mean you don't give them a tool and allow them the dignity of safe path information. So I'm not sure, you know, the usage Criteria, as I said, you measure everything at what is for the child, the potential that and the goals that we're going towards. And then if you are blind or mobility visually impaired, we have to come up with a mobility tool that is consistent and reliable and effective for that child. And that's really the that's what how you measure it. I am curious, so around what ages have you seen the kiddos, for instance, that maybe are introduced to the belt cane as infants, when um, have they been successful going to either a pre-cane or maybe the belt cane is technically a pre-cane, but like a rectangular pre-cane or one that would not be strapped to their middle and then like a long cane. One thing that will happen, uh, we've had a little boy who, um, around between three and four he started to be able to disconnect the magnets mm. on his own. So then his O&M teacher just quite naturally said, well, do you want to wear it or do you want to hold it? And so that transition started to morph into its own self because obviously if you're going to hold it, there's a little more flexibility in terms of what you can do with it and how you can move it. And then when you're not using it or you forget it or you know you're too little to remember that you need it all the time so a lot of we wear it for a little while now 
and there's really nothing you know better or worse in either one other than you know like transitioning to being a potty train it doesn't all happen like that right it's a process and kids start becoming more and more aware of their responsibility in their process in their role as they can mature they will mature and we've had um little girl she started with the bell cane at five she used it over the summer and it clicked for her and she then went to the long cane um successfully was they had no success before the belt cane now she kind of got it and conceptually understood what she wanted to do with the long cane these are the reports i'm getting back from family um about it i'm still you know i get the reports of long cane usage being great but i'm a big proponent of the rectangular cane until the child can truly learn the long cane one step one swipe no prompts and I don't think we have a good research study to really do that because we're so easy to go, well, it's been three steps. They finally swiped over. It looks kind of good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it's kind of over here on the side most of the time. So it's, you know, it's a it approximates the path. So I don't think we should do that. I think we should be have a high threshold of what it means to have your information about the path ahead the fact that they're in a safe space that doesn't have a lot of obstacles or drop-offs or things isn't isn't it isn't the environment in fact i just i'm doing a study on cvi right now we had 665 intake forms 110 of those were kids with cvi i have 15 who are potential walkers before and with videos and we have shown that these kids absolutely benefited from wearing their belt canes. Um, but in this one study, they're like, well, this little kid is nine years old and has lower field loss, so can't see steps, trips over everything. And what we're gonna do is they're gonna hold mom's hand and then uh, <laughs> and everything is fixed. And I'm like, you know, and we're going to clear the environment, make sure the environment's safe and make sure it's all this. And I'm like, as an O&M specialist, it's not logic that if someone will always be there to hold this child's hand and then then be able to walk around eight to 10 hours a day, a 10 year old should be moving around all day long. So how is it possible, conceivable that someone will always be there to hold his hand? And second, how is it conceivable that every environment he will go into, he won't have a problem? And in fact, they said there still were problems with stairs going. He won't go downstairs. He always has to use an escalator. And that's a problem. We always have to stand in a certain place. He's nine years old. Mm. And this is shown as a success story. So until we start raising the bar for success stories and mobility is a huge part of success in travel. We are going to continue to celebrate mediocre and poor results in published papers that now are being highlighted as this is the best you can expect for your child is that they will always have to hold your hand. There was nothing. His intellectual ability was fine. There was nothing to suggest that he, he, he wasn't in a wheel. He had nothing other than no one thought to give him a mobility tool that was easy for him to use until he could use the next device that would work for him other than a hate and i just say as a mobility specialist i i find that incredibly sick yeah 
I'm wondering, so I know that parents, if they want to order one for their child, they can go on Save Toddles website and you can put in the measurements. It's very easy to do. Um, I think they're free. Are they free for families? Yes. We okay. give them away for free if you provide us with videos okay. of your experiences. Yes. So. And we also will pay you. Okay. Even we have better. a project yes, right yes, now. Yes. If you would like to trial it with your child, we'll give you a free bell cane and a hundred dollars. And it's for one minute of video. You shoot from behind. It's a little motion logger that we're testing. So 60 seconds, you wow. send us back the logger, the video, we're done. And uh, and that way you can keep the belt cane and the $100. Wonderful. But what I'm wondering is how the reception has been um, by other O&Ms. So, you know, parents may say, I want this, and they'll go on and order it. And then their child's in a school environment, and they're assigned an O&M. Yeah. What if that O&M is resistant to something new and has been doing something, you know, doing whatever, pre-cane or long-cane, um, historically, and doesn't want to help with supporting the belt cane? How's that been going? Yes, it could be the O&M, it could be the grandmother, mm. it could be the rest of the family. You can really be out there on your own in trying something new. And that really usually ends in not following through, especially if the child has a bad day or it seems to be like just too hard um, to go up against people. It, it works best when there's support. And some kids, I have a, a video on my YouTube, a little Phoenix. She cried anytime anyone asked her to walk and she was 19 months old. So she's behind. She should be walking well by 19 months and she was not. Um, so when you gave her the bell cane, guess what? She cried. So, I mean, cried before bell cane. <laughs> cried with bell cane sometimes people think well it must be the bell cane i'm like wait a minute hold on <laughs> phoenix was crying before so i don't really think we can isolate the bell cane uh it's something new and we're being asked to do something as a little one that our only defense is to say something about it and our way of talking at 19 months is crying so they really kept with it it took i want to say 12 weeks of um you know, two months to really work with her, with the family, with the professionals in school. And and now then last few videos of her are her getting better and stronger. And, you know, they'd call her and she was all by herself outside, walking around, exploring and really catching up to where she should be. And so we see that kind of thing, but it takes absolutely dedication it, across the environment consistency because another connect case is a little boy who he's also on the web on the youtube where he every time he tried to walk he'd jump up and down he'd hit himself he'd stop you know and i want to say he was four or five years old and and you know he just it, it seemed like he was very stressed out by walking with the bell cane basically the same day we saw an improvement and over the next few days he wasn't really doing all of those mannerisms and he was just walking through the hall no one had to hold on to him he was learning how to use his frame and how to detect and move on but the team changed and the new team came on board and said we don't know anything about this bell cane we're going back to the way it was but finally everyone convinced them you know look he's 
progressing back. You know, it's, it's not going as well. Let's try it again. But he didn't trust anymore. So now we're putting the volcano on again and he's, he's got to be convinced somehow that this is not some kind of a trick. You know, he was upset. So it, it, it really hurts a child to give them something that gives them real observable benefit. And then on a whim of someone who, for whatever reason, hasn't had a good education, I don't know, decides, despite everything I'm seeing, let's not do it, what everyone else thinks is a good idea. So it, that's part of the problem. It, will, it can take some kids several weeks of consistently trying it and especially if you only give it to them for a few minutes a day it really matters how much you use it how often you include it how you try to don't make it about the belt king right it's about where are we going what kind of fun are we going to have you know let's go get some ice cream and then if if they cry and that allows them to be released from it well, now we're teaching them that all you have to do is cry, all right? And then you get off. They then are being punished because they don't know the consequence of their behavior. They don't know that if they can be given this opportunity and to get to the another side of understanding that they're going to benefit from it. All they know is right here, right now, this is new. I'm not having it, and I'm going to put a stop to it. So it really has to take the collective adults to support each other and understand it that no, the status quo is bad. I mean, I Braylon is on there. He has got charge syndrome. They they tried to make their own belt cane. They strapped a rectangular cane when they, they that doesn't work. They try, they hold him up with this. They've got the walker. Now he's walking. And it's all shows you. And he, I just got a new video. He's walking better and better. Hmm. He's deaf and blind and, you know, three years old. And, you know, it's five-year-old, six-year-old. Like, they, 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 they get off the wall and into the hallway. But it can take longer and longer and longer the more they've been exposed to this. And so we just... If once you choose to do it, you have to stick with it. Mm -hmm. Some kids, it will happen very quickly, but then there are going to be good days and bad days or whatever. And you're going to have a good day or a bad day. So um, think if you think of it like a wheelchair of how necess you know, the necessity of it, the more likely perhaps you'll be to understand that, yes, with a wheelchair, you have to, you have to make a ramp. You have to move all your furniture. You have to widen the door frames. I mean, it's, wheelchairs cause all kind of trouble. And yet the benefit is so great that we are, you know, willing to understand that for the sake of the benefit, we will go through whatever causes us. And I'd like us to think about mobility tools for blind people in the same way. We have to be more innovative. Think about the wheelchair. You ever seen uh, soccer, wheelchair soccer? That wheelchair yes. they use in wheelchair soccer is not the same wheelchair they use every day. Oh. Thousands of dollars for a wheelchair soccer special for the soccer game is spent. Thousands of dollars spent for the wheelchair they use every day. If you're going to play basketball or some other game, these wheelchairs and devices are very expensive. But for the love of the game and the love of the person, 
we invest in their ability to do these sports. Have you ever heard of white cane soccer? No. No, but have you heard of blind soccer? Yes. <laughs> yeah. What's the difference? We don't call yeah. it paralyzed soccer. We call it right. wheelchair soccer. And we've created a tool that allows them to participate with the device that they absolutely need because of their disability. Mm. And yet we won't do the same for someone who's blind. We just expect them to run into each other like Roman gladiators. Mm. Yeah. I just think it's we haven't really thought this through when we think about the vulnerability of our blind kids being exposed in this way. And then the this idea that, well, they don't seem to mind. I'm like, is that called Stockholm syndrome? I mean, I don't know who we can get them to convince them that as an adult, this is the best we can do for you. What are they supposed to say? Oh, it's okay. I love you. I think we could do better. And that's what safe titles. I think they have well more potential than we've ever given them uh, credit for. I, I know they can walk on time. You just have to give them the tools. Yeah. And yeah. so this idea that it's okay to be delayed in walking and it's okay to be delayed and we'll get to it. We'll, you know, build on these consequences later, the more that you're able to respond is the wrong approach. And that's what safe towels believe. We believe in the potential of the blind toddler is much greater than anyone has been given credit for. And that's why we're at this doing this. So yeah. High expectations are everything. I really across the board, I think. Yeah. And the sensitivity of knowing that I have to trust you, you, mm -hmm. the parent, you, the professionals, when they say, well, I've had to add to my intake form. I say, what's your motor skill? They neglect to tell me they have cerebral palsy and absolutely have to have a walker. Right. And so I'm like, you know, you have to, this matters. It matters right. that you have a, you know, this is not fixing that. It's just adding to the devices that they need. Or if someone has autism or is on the spectrum, right? There's going to be a mindfulness about our approach the more we learn from the families that use it. We're a very new organization. And so we have these high hopes and high potential. But again, as I said, I understand as long as it's calibrated to the actual needs of the user, that way we're going to succeed. You know, not every child is going to succeed in the same way. I love but, that you're reimagining the tools that this field can use, Grace. Because I, I felt for a while, you know, just personal experience with my own son that it's like he's supposed to fit the tools rather than right. the tools fit him, and that's in both O and M and Braille instruction mm -hmm. um, for the littles. And maybe this research is out there and I just haven't really come across it. Or maybe there's um, <clears throat> uh, room in the field for this or people are, are going this direction. But to have like those research based instruction methods that are developmentally appropriate for the young kiddos, again, with Braille, with O&M, like we we're talking about. Um, I love that that Safe Toddles takes into account the child's development. Um, that a long cane may not be what they're ready for. Yeah. Thank you, Stacy. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I'm really uh, excited to get this information out there for people mm -hmm. who uh, might be looking for another opportunity and option to help their child become more uh, independent and mobile. So. 
Uh, what's next? Yes, I was going to say, how can people <laughs> find you? SafeToddles.org. S-A-F-E-T-O-D-D-L-E-S, so not toddlers. It should have been, <laughs> but, you know, you remember, these, these things come apparent after we make your yes. decision. Yes. And we have our website. We also answer all of our emails, info at SafeToddles.org, and we have it on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, um, what is it, Twitter or X? We don't know anymore. Know. <laughs> but we're just here. We answer our phone. We want to be supportive and answer questions. We have kids of all ages who are coming. We are extending the length of the tool. We didn't used to do that um, because of kids who, you know, they're just seeing, will this help uh, them? But our next is truly, we're trying to grow into an organization that continues to innovate mobility tools for the diverse population that we have. There are plenty of people who say, why don't you make it for older adults? Why don't you make it for older kids and taller kids? And I don't think this particular design works successfully. Um, but I know that if we put our minds to it, if we all work collectively and try to solve it, we'll come up with a solution together. Yeah. That's so exciting. I, I can't wait to see where where Safe Toddles goes and hopefully new devices that you include. Um, and also, I'm excited to go and watch some of the videos because uh, we're doing this in a podcast format. But yes, actually seeing what the cane looks like and seeing um, young, young children successfully using it uh, goes a long way to speaking to its need. Thank you, Stacey and Allison. You guys are awesome. Building your own agency because you saw a need. I mean, you are inspiring. And I know I was there (laughs) and everyone was just embracing you and cheering you on. And, you you know, I love that about this field is that, you know, people respect what you're doing for the Tennesseans out there. And I do too. Just thrilled that you're making that happen. Thank you. And for all the listeners, we need more people in yes, the field. So yes, this hasn't inspired us. you. I don't know what will. But. <laughs> We're a great family. Come join us, please. Yes, there's always an opening wherever yeah. you are. Yeah. <laughs> you will never be without a job. Well, keep us posted on all things to come and we'll have you back on when you've got a new uh, innovative device to show us. So Love it. Thank Love you, it. Grace. Happy to do it. Do you know a family or provider in need of resources to support a child with low vision or blindness? Do you know someone with lived experience or professional expertise related to blindness who might be willing to share their story? If so, please reach out to us at blindearlyservices.org. Thank you for listening to the Best Together podcast and for supporting our mission. And please stay in touch. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Blind Early Services. Until next time.